Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. I'm Grant Steinfeld, and I'm here today with Luke Schantz, who's going to talk to us about the Open Mainframe Project and how he recently interviewed his special guest, John Mertig. So, Luke, what happened? What went down? So, I was at a conference, and I connected up with the Linux Foundation folks and, and was able to get an interview with uh, John Mertig. I mean, I know how important mainframes are and that they play a, a key part of our, like, technological backbone of, of civilization, but I didn't really know what's going on from a developer perspective and from an ecosystem perspective, and that's what the Open Mainframe Project's about. It's got nine different projects currently. It's expanding very quickly this year. They're going to launch a bunch of new projects, and it's it's all kinds of things, and some of them, actually, the anomaly detection engine that they released was technology that was like developed for the mainframe, then released open, but now it's something that can be used across all of computing, which is interesting. So it's it's not just uh, things for the mainframe, it's actually things that have come from the mainframe and, and now can be used yeah, uh, by the greater community. And then, oh, what were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, that's super exciting. It's a bit like, you know, things developed at large companies and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, we can actually open sources and be beneficial to other people. So whether it be tooling, that's come out of large companies like us at IBM. So this whole idea that community is now involved rather than this closed vendor locked in proprietary information, people are sharing, people are learning. Um, it's making your software better. It's making the tooling better for the mainframers. And it's also promoting the mainframe because, uh, you know, in, in the past, I think the mainframe was, was you know, a little bit intimidating to some people. It, it, you know, not everyone could program on a mainframe. You, you had to have specific computer science skills. And now it's open for innovation in as a programmer, a web developer can even touch it. It is. And uh, there's a, actually a lot of opportunities uh, to, to run trials on it and to do a bunch of different ma mainframe education-based uh, projects, which are, I, I'll put those in the show notes as well. But the thing I was going to say that's really uh, super exciting, and it's just being announced now, I connected with the Linux Foundation folks this morning, and they let me know that there's going to be an open mainframe summit in New York, September 16th and 17th. So that's uh, September 16th and 17th, 2020, will be the inaugural open mainframe summit. And it's going to bring together the whole ecosystem. You're going to have everything from students and uh, hobbyists all the way through, you know, seasoned professionals and probably some of the engineers that actually develop mainframes. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to that summit and, you know, just learning more and more about, like, how to turn it up. You know, number 11, these dials are really important. Scalability, performance. And, you know, reliability, all of these things are baked in end to end encryption. It's really the platform where you want to run your business. All right. Well, let's hear from uh, my interview with John Martek. Great. Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Schantz. I'm here with John Murtick, Director of Strategic Programs at the Linux Foundation. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Glad to glad to be here. Glad to be enjoying the San Diego sunshine from a lovely conference center, or at least we can look out at it. And it is a lovely conference center. This place it is. This place is very nice. We're at what the Hilton Bayfront. 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 Yes. So, let's kick this conversation off maybe with what is a modern mainframe. 
Well, I will guarantee it is not the sepia tone pictures that you might see if you Google mainframe. It is not the part of, if you go to the Epcot and you have the spaceship Earth ride where you have the part in there, it's not that. Um, it's not what you might hear in, in reference, but it is basically if you want a computer that has the highest performance, security, scalability, and availability, if you need all of those dials turned up to an 11, it is the architecture for you. Um, it powers um, the banking industry, the airline, transportation, healthcare. They're the fastest clock speed CPUs on the planet. They are machines that you can hot swap every last component out of, and they still keep on running. You don't have to have any downtime. And that's actually why they use the IBM uses the monkey or Z. It stands for zero downtime. That's what they're designed for. They're designed if you need workloads that are turned up to that. This is the this is the architecture. This is the system that you can do it on. And these are also the same design principles that harken back to the 60s when these computers started running off, you know, the uh, the assembly line. It is the same principle of we need computing platform that hits all of these marks and they've carried that legacy forward we're at today. And even with the new Z14s and soon to come newer computers, they still hit that same legacy. You know, security, scalability, performance, and availability all turned up to an 11. That's the architecture for you. And the beauty is it runs Linux, open source, and open source on it. So let me ask you, okay, so that's what a mainframe is. So why did the open mainframe project come into existence? What is the mainframe project and why did it come into existence? What was the need for this? So open source has been a part of the mainframe since the late 90s when Marist College helped port Linux over to it. And then you saw distributions like SUSE and Debian and Red Hat and others start to come up on it. Um, and you saw then other tools starting to get ported over. But, you know, it's the same pattern we see across a lot of different industries where open source starts to become of rise, but you start to see sort of those growing pains or scalability issues. So you start to see the open source is very vendor dominated. You start to see a lot of duplications of effort. You start to see, you know, challenges of engagement with broader communities. And, you know, when we at sort of the Linux Foundation start to see open source communities start to get to that level, the next echelon, the next sort of way to cross that chasm is to start to form a vendor neutral entity that can be the caretaker of this and they can help bring together these efforts that can help be a home to these projects that can help create a sense of vendor neutrality. And that's why this really, this project came to be is that, you know, the group around the mainframe, they loved open source, they loved Linux, they wanted to see this ecosystem grow and they saw the next way to do that. Let's form a project, let's form a foundation that can actually take it to that next level. So what are some of the projects that are part of, or the sub-projects that are part of this larger main open mainframe project? So we have um, currently seven projects that have been launched under it. One of the very first ones that actually was a code donation from IBM, one of the largest code donations they've ever made, was called Anomaly Detection Engine for Linux Logs. And basically, it is a part of an IBM product called Zeoware, but it is a tool for running against RFC-compliant logs for looking for anomalies that might happen within them. So there's a lot of analytics and stuff involved with it. And the interesting part of that is that it is a mainframe, is a project that came from the mainframe world, but because it was brought out into open source, you can use it against on any architecture. Any So it's bringing the mainframe innovation out into the world, right? Another one that was launched last year is called Zoe. 
And it is a project for creating REST APIs and services along with a command line interface and web application tools for exposing ZOS services. Because, you know, before then, if you want to interact with, and ZOS is sort of the longstanding operating system for mainframes for decades, the way you'd access it is through what's called a 3270 terminal, but your listeners might know it better as a green screen. That was how you access the data. With this here, you could hook modern application platforms, modern DevOps tools. So one of the components that was contributed um, was a CLI so that you could, you know, install that on your local computer and just like you could do bash scripting on your local computer against a mainframe. You know, there was a web desktop component so you could actually have GUI based tools that you could write that interface directly back with the mainframe. So you could have user-facing applications that are written in Angular and, you know, Node.js and JavaScript and things like that um, that can interface with it. So that was a really big transformational project because that is, again, that's just a platform that was considered so locked down for so many decades. And now that it has this whole breadth of just open sourceness to that community, which has always had the spirit of open source, but now actually having a true project that they can identify with um, has been huge. And then today here, we've announced three new projects joining. So we've actually doubled our projects here over a year. One of them is called Filong, which if you have people that have been involved in the ZVM world in the past, this is a technology to connect ZVM to cloud tools such as OpenStack and others sort of cloud orchestration tools. It was a project that was started by IBM and now donated and brought under the Open Mainframe project. We have another one called ZARO, which stands for Z Open Repository of Workflows. So again, if you have people that are in the Z world, there's technology called Z OSMF workflows, which are basically like workflows for doing batch management and everything. This is a project that actually labels main, you know, system operators to across companies collaborate on the workflow scripts because oftentimes it's a lot of the same thing and they'd often been so siloed to be able to contribute and collaborate on you know these common scripts and workflows just helps make their jobs a lot easier and we're already seeing you know organizations like Rabobank for example be a major contributor to this project so we're really excited to see that and then a smaller project Terse decompress which is really a tool for terse files which are common in the mainframe world this is an open source Java-based tool that you can run on any platform that runs Java to decompress those files. So we're starting to now see with Zoe more and more of these projects. We have a huge pipeline of projects of people that are interested to come in that our technical steering committee is reviewing. So it's really exciting and it's exciting to start to see that action around open source here. And obviously IBM is, is involved, but are there, any, yeah, <laughs> are there any other uh, sort of members that you can mention? Like what type of individuals and companies are getting involved with this? So we're seeing a lot of, it's really interesting. So we're seeing across of sort of traditional mainframe large companies. So companies like Rocket Software and Broadcom, which CA was originally a member, but now is um, under Broadcom through that acquisition that happened late last year. So we see very traditional companies like that. We're starting to see IBM business partners. Viacom Infinity, for example, has been a longstanding member, one of the founding members. We see people in the Linux space, so SUSE and Canonical, both members. We're seeing sort of more smaller boutique shops in the mainframe world. So Phoenix Software, who just announced joining, and SyncSort are two really great examples there of shops that are part of a GT software, another they joined a few years ago. And then we're also just seeing small, so broad companies, Stalker, for example, as a member. 
So it's a really interesting combination there. Another component we have is a large academic presence. So I think we have 15 different higher education institutions, both in the U.S. and Europe, that are a part of it, that help have some of their students get engaged with the projects. They're actually taking some of our work and bringing them into uh, class projects, um, self-study or capstone-like structures, and also having some of their students come in and join our summer mentorship program as well. So it's a really, really broad, diverse set of individuals. Interesting. I want to ask you more about education. So obviously students that are part of programs, this is a great opportunity, but let's say I'm a a web developer or I'm a a DevOps person and I I want to get some uh, more knowledge and and maybe some experience. Uh, What resources and opportunities do I have to to get my hands dirty with mainframes. So there's a lot of really cool things. One of the easiest things is you can go right to our website. There's a uh, Linux One Community Cloud, which is hosted by IBM, which you can go check out. And this is a free, I think it's a 120-day trial, where you can just try out Linux on a mainframe. No holds bar, you know, has, you know, SUSE or Canonical, one of the distributions already installed. And you can just go try your stuff on it, see how it works, see that it basically works and feels the exact same way. That's a great starting point to just, you know, being able to immediately maybe transition your Linux and other skills over. IBM has also set up a trial for Zoe as well. So if you want to try out that technology, there's a link on the zoe.org site to go right to there as well and and check that out. So those are great just hands-on resources. You know, outside of that, there's just a number of little numerous educational sort of opportunities. We run a summer mentorship program where we've had almost 40 different students from around the world who have made contributions to the open source on mainframe ecosystem. You know, everything from we had one student in our first class that ported Alpine Linux to the platform and now is a maintainer, actually works for IBM, Tuan Wong, great guy. We've had, you know, others that have made contributions to Kubernetes, Cloud Foundry, Hyperledger, you know, all sorts of tools. And a lot of those have stuck around and got involved in the mainframe world as well, or even have built careers around this. So there's just numerous opportunities that are starting to pop up there. And just, if anything, is just come check out some of the projects. We have them all cataloged up on our GitHub, and you can go check them out and talk with us on Slack, meet some of the members in the community, and, and really get started that way. And from a developer standpoint, too, someone who maybe has never uh, you know, encountered a mainframe or had thought about it before, some things come to mind, but I'm going to ask you, like, what would be some of the advantages? Like, what opportunities open up to someone? It's like, if you have mainframe experience, all of a sudden now, hey, multinationals or banks or, you know, government jobs, like, there actually is like a hidden demand for these skills, isn't there? There is a gigantic demand. There is, it's probably no secret that there is a more jobs than people available in the mainframe world. And to be honest, there's some of the highest, most stable, highest paying and most stable Um, paying jobs out there right now. I mean, we actually tell a lot of the mentees that come through our program that is probably one of your best paying jobs coming out of school is, you know, getting a mainframe, you know, programmer analyst, one of those jobs because the skills are high demand. There's a big retiring workforce out there. There's a new generation of people coming in. So it's a really critical thing because these mainframes, they're not, they're not going away. And matter of fact, we're starting to see the footprint grow of them especially with the advent of so many security breaches and just the need for more higher transactional computing out there. And even just the advent of like microservices and things like that, you know, organizations are finding new ways to only use their existing mainframes, but they're also even increasing their usage of mainframes just because they just see 
the potential for what those workloads specifically are for there. And they need a talent force for it. So, I mean, I would really encourage any student, you know, you don't necessarily have to go all in with everything mainframe, but to have that as a part of your repertoire is a huge career advantage to you right now, especially, you know, if you're looking to work in finance, banking, insurance, healthcare, transportation, which are all extremely stable jobs out there. And there may be a perception that working on a mainframe means you're programming in COBOL or something. And I'm sure there's still a lot of there's COBOL. A couple of, there's a couple of COBOL programs running out there. Yeah. But just to comment or, or to highlight this notion of things you mentioned, like Docker's involved, you have this Zoe project. Like There really is a modern tool set and, and modern paradigms are being applied to the mainframe world. Oh, exactly. I and mean, that's really a lot of why Zoe came around is because the organizations that contributed the original Zoe code, IBM, Rocket Software, and CA Technologies at the time, now they're Broadcom, they saw that out there. They saw that hey, we need to have a more modern set of tools here that is going to intermix with what's being used out there because, A, most of our organizations are run on that anyways. I mean, they're using modern DevOps. They're using Node.js and, and all of these other you know tools like that. We need to make sure we're using the same things here. We need to make, how can we make these same patterns apply over here? And yeah, I mean, yes, there is legacy COBOL stuff that's going to run forever, but what we're seeing with the advent of Zoe is, oh, I want to use a mainframe, but guess what? I can program against REST APIs on it and leverage that data. I can use Node.js right on my mainframe. I can use Java on it. I can use Python. I can use all of these other modern tools. I can manage it through Kubernetes or OpenStack. So it's just really, really opening up the more of the usage and kind of breaking mainframe out of the normal silo. In a lot of organizations where you have like all of you know DevOps and then you have the mainframe sitting off to the side, now we're starting to see more and more organizations that integrate those units well together and then they're able to take advantage of each other's strengths. And that's the sort of thing that this project is enabling. Fascinating. I'm going to shift gears for a sec. This is actually a two-part origin story question. The first part is going to be your, what kicked it off in the beginning? Like for me, it was a Commodore 64 and, you know, seeing that and, and having it, some people it's the ham radio or the graphing calculator. What was that moment in the very beginning that kicked it off and set you down this path? Oh boy, this is where the story gets fun. So my dad bought me and my brother a TI-99 4A. And I remember picking up some old, um, I think they were Byte computer magazines, and they used to have the basic programs in the back. And I remember sitting there typing all of them out, but they weren't specific the T984A. I think some of them were like an Apple Basic and a few other things. So I have to do like a little bit of translation on the fly to get some of the programs to work. But I remember playing with that. I remember even one time wishing like I had a sick day from school so I could just sit home and like type out basic programs. Like how crazy is that, right? But yeah, I think I just started to get into it from there. And then I think my parents had got like a Tandy 1000HX some years after that. Now we're really getting into the folklore there. After I tricked out my TNA 948, because there you had like the modules you plugged into the side of it. And I remember so you had the main unit and then it just like I had like it was like five feet plugged in. So you'd have all this crap that was like plugged in and you'd have the, the tape deck because you had programs you record to tape and everything. But yeah, then I remember the TNA 948. Uh, that's, we had the Tandy 1000HX, and I remember my dad had bought a modem for it. He got a modem from work so he could work from home. So this is a computer here with a 2400 baud modem. He upgraded to 640K. It's good enough for everyone, right? I don't even think, I think it only had floppy disks, but it only had the 720K floppy disk and a CGA monitor. All right. And I remember finagling my way to be able to get on the internet 
using links and I figured out how to configure a PPP client and all of that to get online. And I remember some of my first times online, like using links and Gopher and all of that to get online. And I think everything just spurred from there. And I guess I just sort of never turned back. And now I've got, you know, all sorts of even some classic stuff. I tend to collect a few old Macs and stuff like that. I just never like to give hardware away. I've got a bunch of random Raspberry Pis. My son and I built a fart machine out of a, a Raspberry Pi. It was we got like one of like the Google AIY kits and he's like, what do we want to do it? Cause they were like cheap at Micro Center. They're going to do it. I'm like, there's a button on it. Let's make a fart machine. So he goes up and it's in my office now and may probably has heard this. He goes up and he'll go up and press it every so often. and It'll just make like these awful farting sounds, but he thinks it's the coolest thing on earth. So yeah, I don't know. It's just like all of those little things. And I've just always just been just sort of amazed of the use and everything about technology. But yeah, I think kicking off with that TN994A, which I think is probably still sitting in my parents' basement. Never give that up. I know, right? Exactly. How about you? So for me, well, growing up, my family manufactured entertainment lighting. So oh, nice. I grew up like in an electronics factory, and just witnessing that and seeing that and just, you know, it just you know blew yeah. my mind. And I also had an amazing grandfather with a workbench, and he would just teach me, you know, First, it was like hand tools and then repairing basic electronics and those skills in that time. Even now, I'm still like a workshop person. I I keep a separate workshop from my house and it's like half as much as my rent, but I don't care. It's cool. It's good for the mind. It's good just to kind of unwind and just focus into that. It's a good sort of break from the busyness of our time, isn't it? Absolutely. And after this interview, I'll pull my IoT projects out of my bag and we can geek out on them. (laughs) Nice, nice, (laughs) nice. My second part of the origin question was, how did you get involved with mainframes? Basically, it was through the Linux Foundation. And it was really more of when I started here, It was I, I got brought in around a project in the big data space. And they said, hey, you know, would you mind picking up a second project? And here's the list. And I'm like, oh, mainframe. Oh, it's IBMers. I like IBMers. I'll hang out with them. And they're just such a cool group of people to work with. Like, I find... Like, I like to take kind of the, the larger view of the industry that they're in. And, and I always find it so fascinating that they think so much about their backwards and forwards lineage. Like, they think so much about where they've came from and the legacy that they've put. But they're also thinking about how do we pass this legacy on. And I think about that just, like, in the terms of, like, even the, the projects we spend time with the Linux Foundation. Like, we're not... I mean, there are some big flashy stuff that we have going on cloud and blockchain and all that. And they're, and they're all cool and all. And I'm not, you know, whatever. But we really think about technologies that need to matter to our society. Like, it's not just something that's cool, something that's, you know, hot right now. But, like, what are the cornerstone things that matter to us as a society to function? And mainframes are that. I mean, you know, our board chair, Lance Angelicia, will will tell me all the time. He's like... You know, the cloud could go down and it would be an annoyance. But if the mainframes went away, our society would wreck into chaos. You know, financial systems would crash, planes and transportation would go anywhere like that. But what I just find fascinating is this group of people is looking forward to that next generation of how do we set this up for them? Because we know how important this was to us. We know how important this is our society. How can we make sure that this is caretake? for the next 50 years. And I just, I love that sort of look. And I think that was one of the biggest first things this project going to do is like, we need to set in place a mentorship program so that we can get the pieces of how do we carry this legacy forward? How do we keep this, just not next people involved just for our own namesakes, but just because we think it's important. We invested our lives into this. 
And I think that's what I've always just, it attracted me so much. And I think as more of I learned about these, the people, the technology, what it's all about, I think it's fascinating. And it also fascinates me because I totally want to find an old building that has like a mainframe that's better to get torn out and just like wreck it out and put it in my basement. My wife is probably won't be too thrilled about that, but whatever. I just think it would be fascinating. When you find that mainframe, call me. I'm going to come <laughs> help you move it. And I'm not going to tell my wife where I'm at. Yes. I'm going to come and I will help you set we that up. extract that out. This is why I had to get like the big expedition with the extra towing package. So when I get the trailer to put that on, I can tow all 9,600 pounds with it. So There was a, in one of the presentations yesterday, I think it's been out for a little while, but it was interesting. You can emulate a power core on a FPGA now. <sighs> so cool yeah isn't it i was yeah i was like i want to do i do want to get myself on some open power hardware because i find different architectures are just really cool well let me say similar to uh what you're doing there's a a a user group that's being launched between so it's uh, ibm or linton ward Mm -hmm. chris sullivan from the university of oregon genomics and biocomputing lab and john chase from (laughs) mach 3 which is a power shop okay and they have a very I interviewed all three of them yesterday, actually, and they outlined a very similar story to what you just told me about the problems that mainframe developers encounter, and that is mainly that they're isolated because they're working inside companies, they're working mm-hmm. that have high security policies. Yes. And they're short- not even allowed to talk about the fact that they use a mainframe. It is the saddest thing I feel for these people because they're, and we actually do a podcast series ourselves called I'm a Mainframe because we just, we saw this huge challenge out there, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but it just like spurred my mind. We see this huge challenge out there where you, if you think of like, who is a mainframer, you know, and I always, I'm so guilty of this. I like find like the whitest dude with gray hair and point to him. Like you think of that guy, but it's honestly what you think of, but you don't realize like there are people that are at the end of their career. There are people in the middle of their career that are younger in the career. You have people that are men, women, you know, all sorts of diverse backgrounds and people just don't like realize what that connection is. And so we actually, that's why we kicked off a podcast series because like we need to highlight these people. Like we need to show that there are real people doing this and that it is important to their career and it is important to who they are and they've grown identity with it. So yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. And these stories just never come out because people are just, either they're, they can't talk about what they're doing, they feel ashamed about it. I, I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of backgrounds with it. And a lot of these companies, it is actually because of how important their mainframe computing infrastructure is they just they're barred by nda to talk about what they're doing because it's that important to the world so yeah i find that just so fascinating but i think yeah just finding an outlet to talk about it is is really good and i totally cut you off so if i threw up your you know line of thought there oh not at all (laughs) i'm here to hear what you're saying anyway Uh, the the, the less talking i do the better (laughs) the punchline to that though was i don't i'll find it and put it in the notes but ibm does have access to power but also within this community both john at mach 3 and the uh, university of oregon they have a bioinformatics lab Uh and they also have an open source lab but they are all also willing to open up their resources to the community, especially oh, around great. testing and benchmarking and figuring out how to benchmark. That like is great. The art of benchmarking. How do you even know, how do you test the work, you know, this work, is it? Yes. Is this really happening? Yes. Is this right? So That is really hard. It's and, not easy, yeah. And the idea for sharing those resources is they want to share the work that they do. That They know when there's no documentation and you have this strange edge use case that you think you're alone. There's, there is someone out there who is also trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And if we can share those best practices and those Absolutely. resources and, and these like patterns, this could be a really interesting uh, situation. And I agree. So yeah, I will definitely make a connection there. Maybe there's some uh, some computing I think we can be something do. Interesting there, yeah. 
Totally, totally. Very exciting. So you had mentioned this earlier too, but I would wanted to ask if there's any sort of stories maybe from your podcast that stick out where you're like, oh, wow, I, I, I found this real gem here and it's like, it's, you know, it's heartening or exciting. I think the story that I always harken back to, and again, it was early on, and I think I referenced this. So in our first year of running the mentorship program, we had a student who applied that was, oh, sorry, from Vietnam. His name's Tuan Wong. He applied and said, hey, I want to do the work from porting Alpine Linux to the platform. He did that porting work, ended up using that to parlay to get himself into grad school at Marist College you know, in New York, Poughkeepsie. From there, he's now not only the maintainer of the Alpine Linux port to S390, I think he might also be involved with the power side, but I know S390 for sure. But then he was also employed by IBM. So here's a kid, you know, a guy that used this, you know, saw this opportunity here and then used this to basically just dramatically improve his career. Like he's a high sought after person within IBM and within the larger community all because of this. And we have a couple of students like that. We have another one that uh, I think was from India that now works for SUSE on Cloud Foundry on the IBM 3S, you know, mainframe platform. So those, I just love those stories. Like that just sort of just really is something that just, you know, tells we're going. And I think the other is I was a couple of weeks ago at Share, which is a biannual conference of sort of the mainframe community. It was in Pittsburgh, which was, it's great. It's really close to where I am. It's two hour drive. And I sat in, we sponsor their women in IT events there. The second conference in a row, we did that, but they did a panel and it was great just sitting in there listening to all of these women who have basically found a career around mainframe, but also have just, were so open to sort of sharing with us as an audience of what are the challenges that they've had? Like, what are the barriers that they've had within it and how they've learned to overcome them? And I just, I love so much of the story. Some of those folks we're going to have on our podcast to interview, but those are, I just love the connection of some of those stories within there. Our board chair, Lynn Santalucia, I mean, if you ever get a chance to hear him speak about his time in mainframe, it is just amazing you have to see it in person and he will just start talking about him as like a 10 year old boy watching with his dad you know touching the first mainframe as it's coming off the line and it's just riveting it just shakes he's like oh it's just so cool and him being i think a third generation at ibm it's just fascinating so he has just some of those personal stories in there of people that have found their way into here that are working their way through here or just have such legacy through here it's just it's amazing so yeah it is a great way right for developers to distinguish themselves and to get opportunities mm -hmm. and then if they are working at a company that hopefully supports them supporting uh, working on open source it's also a great way of you know not having your work locked away in mm -hmm. some proprietary thing so God forbid you lose your job, well, your work is out in the open. Someone else may be able to hire you and you can continue the same work you're doing. That is exactly it. And I think that's something that, you know, we've, we're sort of really, I mean, the project's been around for four years, but I feel like within the last year, this community has just started to get that and recognize that, oh, wow, these are projects. I, I remember sitting at last year when we announced this and talking to a mainframe audience is like, you know, this project isn't Rockets, IBM's, CAs. It's everybody's project. It's all of your project. Everyone has a piece of this puzzle. Everyone is a part of it. And I just remember just looking at them and they just, it shocked them. Like they just didn't know how to take that. And I feel like over the last year, that has started to percolate back in. They're realizing, oh, wow, I can just 
not only could I just take this code and do something with it, if I see something, I can go participate. Like, I can go contribute back. Like, I can, I can commit code to this thing. And it's just taken a while for them to kind of the gears in motion. But yeah, to your right, it's like developers have a space in here. And then you as a person that's contributed, like, my name is out there in the public attached to this code. Like, that's amazing. That's, that's creating you job opportunities that, hey, maybe I don't like where I'm at, maybe whatever. I can go find somewhere based on this. So, yeah, it's totally is just leveling the playing field in this world. And, I, and, you know, we see this in industries all over the place. This is this is nothing new, but it's so cool seeing it in, in action. And it, it is really interesting how even across different sectors of tech, whether it's hardware, software, or, you know, cloud native versus mm-hmm. mainframe, there is this meta commonality about how open source works, mm-hmm. right? Like the same thing that we just said you could, you could apply to someone oh, yeah. who's working on Node. Exactly. It's really interesting how where they're like, we realize that we actually need these separate entities to maintain these objective perspectives right. for our own good. I think there's a little bit of a pushback. I was just listening to this morning, the daily podcast, and they were talking about the shift back. I think there was a bunch of the major CEOs in the United States had signed a common document to basically say that their number one priority is no longer stockholders, which if you go back to like the 20s and 30s, like a lot of those big companies at the time were looking at how do we do, you know, community good. Like they were giving it back a lot to their communities. They were like establishing pension funds. All of these big things were starting to spin up here. And then it was only when you had the corporate raiders in the 1980s, the Carl Icons of the world, that's when things started to shift more towards a stockholder um, piece there. And so it's really interesting how we've now we're starting to get that shift back to, you know, common good and what's the greater impact for our society. And I think it, it sort of encapsulates a little bit behind where we're at with open source right now in the same way. We're starting to see these companies and, you know, there's always a lot of like crazy pushback out there. It's like, oh, is this Microsoft trying to take over? Is it IBM? Is it all pay to play? No, it's these companies are realizing to be innovative, you know, we need to harness this energy is happening that we don't it doesn't make sense for us to duplicate all of our efforts and they want to help have a way to participate in all this process i mean are they going to take and build products and things like that of course they will but they're also going to roll that back into the communities and they're going to see hey we need to complete this circle you know it's not just take but it's also take you know profit and then roll those resources back in and so yes i think we're just seeing that start to come into fruition and the more that we see patterns of this we just start seeing this replicate over different industries i mean i'm fortunate enough to work with the academy software foundation as well and that's the same pattern we're seeing there like those companies are realizing we need to invest back into these projects and that's sort of what helps feed this next generation does that have any to do with visual effects yes and so i used to be a visual effects artist for, oh cool i was like for blue man group for five years yep. after effects cinema 4d and yep. i'm a big blender 3d yep. user yep. which yep i got to meet the founder of blender t- t- was it ton yeah yes yes i got to meet he got a big like lifetime achievement award siggraph a couple weeks ago he's a cool guy just amazing guy what a, a vision and very similar to people who work in open source and dedicated i mean yeah. it is open source, but really just a beautiful dedication to tool making and creativity and software. And now Blender 2.8 is whole redesign, much easier interface. And God, that thing was over Hacker News. There was like, you know, at least like 15 different announcements across the whole week on Hacker News. And they were all and they weren't marked as dupes either. They were like all different discussions happening. It was great. What did I just see a post this week? Uh, Evangelion, the anime, the Mm -hmm. the next one, they're on Mm -hmm. Netflix. The next one is being made in Blender 2.8. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. That industry is just really you don't realize that that industry is completely powered by open source like 
if you if you see an explosion, and I know we're off of mainframes now, but whatever. If you see an explosion on a movie, it's because of a library called OpenVDB. And it powers so much out there. All the color matching technology that happens out there, open color IO, image formats, open EXR, it's just amazing out there. And it's, it's all open source. And these companies are collaborating and just building the next generation of movies out of it. And it's just, it's fascinating. Well, I want to I be more involved with that too. I like mainframes, but I like visual effects too. We don't, you saw the video this morning, right? Uh, yeah, it's it pretty is. cool. It is it's really cool. cool. It is really it's cool. cool. So uh, I really appreciate taking the time. Is there any sort of social links or media blogs? I know we talked about some other websites directly related to the main team, but if our listeners want to follow up with you specifically, are, are you a Twitter guy or medium? I am a Twitter guy. I'm on Jay Murtick on Twitter, and so that's a good place to start off there. And I think there's even links out to the projects I work with, ASWF, Open Mainframe, ODPI. Definitely for this, check out openmainframeproject.org just on the foundation as a whole. If you're interested specifically in Zoe, zoe.org has all the places to get you started there. And we also have community forums, social mailing lists, you know, you, you name it, we got it. Great community to collaborate with. Definitely check a lot of those out. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking time to sit down with me today, John. Absolutely. This has been a blast. Luke, that was truly amazing. You know, I, you know, I love the mainframe. Uh, it is amazing to me that I it's... know you love the mainframe. When we went up to Poughkeepsie to tour the mainframe factory... Didn't you come away with like a mini mainframe or something? That's correct. I have my own mainframe emulator. It's sitting in, on my shelf at home. I've hooked it up to my Red Hat laptop, and it's very exciting. I can play on the terminal. I can run jobs. I run the job control language. I'm working with vSAM and copybooks. And these things originally in Y2K were really hard to understand and work with. But now with the whole open source initiative and open mainframe project, all of these things are now becoming democratized. So not only, you know, serious computer scientists can get involved with the mainframe, it's open to everyone. All developers, ranging from data scientists to web developers to database administrators to DevOps, it really is truly amazing. So I, I'm super excited, and um, so are you. <laughs> I, you're right, I am. And so the other thing... Uh, I, wanted to mention too right was uh that we're gonna put the link to the upcoming summit in the show notes when it becomes available uh they told me it was uh it was happening today but i think it actually hasn't been posted on the site yet but i will put that there when it becomes available and uh you can find uh us on social media at g steinfeld is where you can find grant you can find me at luke Schantz, and our uh guest john murtick is at J Mertic. So it's J M E R T I C. And that's on Twitter. Yeah, please join us soon on the IBM Developer Podcast. Thanks for listening. 